Good morning, all. In case you're wondering, um, uh, the badge is uh, tomorrow is Reformation Day, I'm sure you all know. Forget about whatever else people think it is. Uh, Reformation Day, remembering uh, that 503 uh, years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And uh, this is a present from some Christian friends in Malaysia, and I thought I'd wear it today for you. Uh, let's uh, turn, will you, uh, with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and let me read to you from the first verse. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and, in order to test him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It'll be good weather, for the heavens are red. And the morning, it will be stormy today, for the heavens are red and threatening. You know how to discern the appearance of the heavens, but you are not able to discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And leaving them, he went away. And when the disciples came to the other side, they'd forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and be very careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we took no bread. Knowing this, Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up and the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? How do you not know that I was not speaking to you about bread? Be very careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to be careful of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we pray that this morning as we seek to understand it and to live in the light of it, you might grant that your word is written on our hearts and minds and your spirit given to us to enable us to respond appropriately. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the great British travel guides on the internet... Uh, is entitled, Everything in Australia is Trying to Kill You. Uh, Steph writes, It's a truth universally acknowledged that every single animal in Australia in possession of a good self-defence mechanism must want to end your life. In other words, everything in Australia is trying to kill you. She goes on, Almost any living creature over here you can think of, aside from perhaps the koala, has been the cause of human injury or death. So you get my gist. Australia is a dangerous and wild country. Essentially, you risk your life just stepping out the front door. I have friends who have been influenced by that kind of stuff and who have no intention of ever coming to Australia anytime soon. They've heard the warnings and they take them seriously. They endlessly speak to me about red-bellied black snakes, brown snakes, funnel-web spiders, great white sharks, box jellyfish and all the others, and they haven't even heard about the drop bears. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
there must be a substantial danger, they reason, highlighted by this warning. And so let's avoid the death chamber that is the land down under. Well, underneath the humour and the entertainment, there is a real warning. The animals mentioned by Steph and others are, in fact, dangerous. They're not the kind of pests you want to snuggle up to in the backyard or in front of your favourite movie. They're not the kind of thing you'd want your young children playing with. But we aren't all dropping like flies, and the dangerous animals can be avoided most of the time. It's not quite as dangerous as it seems, and we all recognise that the headline's a bit over the top. But warnings are necessary because dangers are real. We're quite alert to that in the uh, face of the pandemic, aren't we? We've been warned about spreading the disease through incautious social contact and the death toll around the world. What is it at the moment? One and a quarter million deaths from the virus. The death toll drives home the fact that the danger is real. The basic principle is as true in scripture as it is in other places. Warnings are given because dangers are real. They're necessary because dangers are real. And in the passage in Matthew's Gospel that we come to this morning, Jesus issues a warning, not once, but twice. The same warning, twice. Because there is a very real danger that we need to be alert to and to avoid at all costs. It's there in verse 6. Watch out and be very careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And again in verse 11. Be very careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we might be tempted to ignore this warning ourselves, even if we recognise it was something that the first disciples needed to hear. After all, I haven't seen many practising Pharisees this week. Have you? I'm sure uh, I'd, I'd not be able to identify a Sadducee if I met one in the street either. The 21st century seems a little light on when it comes to Pharisees and Sadducees. Real Pharisees and Sadducees, that is. Uh, the groups that Jesus was dealing with here in this chapter. Yet the warning is just a little more pointed than that. And this is when Matthew 16 begins to bite us. You see, at this point at least, Jesus was not saying, watch out for the Pharisees and Sadducees but watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch out for something that comes from them, something that, just like yeast or leaven, works its way through the dough and spreads and changes the shape and character of the dough, something that will spread and change and shape your character if you let it. So why did Jesus say that? What caused him to be so emphatic, repeating the same words in the space of less than a minute? What was he talking about and why exactly do we need to hear it? Well, to answer those questions, we have to look more carefully at two things in this passage. The catalyst, what Jesus' encounter with a group of Pharisees and Sadducees reveals about them in verses 1 to 4, and the warning what Jesus has to say to his disciples in the wake of that encounter in verses 5 to 12, the catalyst and the warning. First, the catalyst. 
The encounter uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees is full of surprises. Did you notice? The first surprise, the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And the little delegation that came to Jesus almost as soon as he left Gentile territory is frankly something extraordinary. You see, most of the time the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at loggerheads. They weren't natural allies. They were rivals, each seeking the approval of the people, seeking recognition as the true guardians of Israel's religion. They didn't normally go out on field trips together. The religious purists, preoccupied with the minutiae of religious observance on one side, and the doctrinal minimalists, those willing to accommodate for, an, for the sake of influence and power on the other. In Acts, uh, when Paul wanted to create a diversion, he threw in the debating hand grenade that would set one group against the other. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you here today, he said. And immediately the age-old rivalry would be stirred up between these two groups since the Pharisees looked forward to the resurrection and the Sadducees said there was no such thing. So what were they doing here, together? What could they possibly have in common? Surely something strange is going on here. The second surprise, they came to test Jesus. They weren't coming to learn from Jesus, they weren't coming out of a genuine desire to find the truth, or to follow the Messiah they'd heard about. The word that uh, Matthew uses for testing here has been used before in the Gospel. Just once, the last one to test Jesus was the devil. He'd accosted Jesus in the wilderness to do it. He'd attempted to drag Jesus down to divert him from the work he'd come to. He wanted to sabotage Jesus and his mission. And these leaders... The devoted purists and the doctrinal minimalists had the same basic motive. They weren't testing him, intending him to pass. Their clear intention was that he would fail the test. There's a certain cynical scepticism that drives them forward and motivates their request. They want Jesus to perform, to dance to their tune, and if he won't, and I kind of expect that he won't, then clearly they would feel justified in ignoring him. The third surprise is what they ask. They ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, in one way, this is not a surprise, is it? Another group of Pharisees in chapter 12 had come to Jesus and said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That, it appears, was not a one-off and neither is this demand now. But the real strangeness of this request comes from when it is asked. What had Jesus just been doing? In the chapter before, he had healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman, he'd healed those with various diseases who were brought to him, and he'd fed 4,000. Back in chapter 12, when that other group of Pharisees had demanded a sign, it was just after he had healed the man who'd been made blind and mute by a demon who possessed him. You see, in both cases, the context is a powerful demonstration of Jesus' lordship over creation. If these Pharisees and Sadducees hadn't actually been there to witness it for themselves, 
it's almost impossible to imagine that they would not have heard of these extraordinary manifestations of the kingdom of God breaking in, breaking in because the king is here. Yet for neither group were those signs enough. Give us another sign, and no doubt another, and another, and another. Give us a sign that we're willing to recognise as a sign from heaven. They'd been given signs on more than one occasion, but they'd refused to consider them. They'd refused to examine them. They'd refused to understand what those signs were pointing to. What God had already given them in Jesus was not enough. We can explain away those things. Give us something more. Give us a sign from heaven. The fourth surprise lies in the way Jesus answered their demand. He didn't rush straight to the refrain, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Instead, he pointed to their skill in being able to interpret the signs in the heavens. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. They had the analytical skills to discern the face of the heavens, as Jesus literally put it. But that only makes their refusal to examine the person, life and work of Jesus all the more culpable. They understood signs. They could even correctly predict how the weather would behave on the basis of signs. But they refused to look at the signs they'd been given in the things Jesus had already done and to consider where those things were pointing. They refused to investigate, refused to examine, refused to believe. In the Gospel, it's clear that they repeatedly refuse to even weigh the evidence when it's placed right in front of them. They just keep asking for more. And it indicated the dreadful truth about them. It indicated the state of the heart and where their teaching, on both sides of this spectrum, where their teaching eventually leads. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus was not saying, you want spectacular? I'll give you spectacular. As the prophet Jonah was spectacularly brought back from the depths of the earth, so my resurrection, that's going to knock your socks off. Jesus wasn't, in effect, giving in to the request for something undeniable and obvious that would satisfy them. The sign of Jonah in this context was the sign of God's prophet swallowed up in judgment. You're looking for the spectacular, Jesus was saying, and you'll miss the one sign God will give you, the catching up of all judgment in the cross of the innocent Christ. You'll miss it if you're a Pharisee, one of the religious purists, concerned about the details of religious observance, adding their own traditions and glosses to the word of God, the the gospel plus people. Yes, the word you've heard is true, but you need to do this too. And gradually the additions become more important than the truth with which they began. Gradually you can't even see what's in front of you. And you'll miss it too if you're a Sadducee. The doctrinal minimalists, those who are quite happy to surrender parts of the teaching of Scripture in order to be seen as more reasonable, to be more acceptable, 
to gain influence. Oh, for evangelistic reasons, of course. The gospel minus people. We should stop talking about that now. Then, we don't believe that anymore. Then, how could anyone believe that anymore? And gradually, you can't even see what is in front of you. You see, what united the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a refusal to accept Jesus, which flowed out of a wicked and adulterous heart, a heart that had betrayed the very thing it looked like they were on about from the outside. The Pharisees, as we've seen in this gospel, weren't really interested in faithful, godly living, just the appearance of it. And the Sadducees weren't seeking the advance of God's kingdom, just their own. That's why they couldn't see what they had, what was happening right in front of their eyes. You remember Jesus' words to uh, the inquirers from John the Baptist back in chapter 11? Are you the one who is to come uh, or are we to look for another? And Jesus said, in effect, what does it look like, John? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Read the signs, John, the signs of the times. But that was what this strange and awkward delegation of Pharisees and Sadducees were unwilling to do. Each for their own reasons. What united them was a poisonous self-interest that kept them from seeing and understanding and believing. They came to test Jesus, to expose his failure. But in the end, they were the ones who were tested and they were the ones who failed. So Jesus stepped away from them. He left them there and went away. Now, friends, that's the catalyst for the warning that comes in the second part of the passage. The, the scene when Jesus and his disciples arrive at the other side has its comic side, doesn't it? The disciples can't seem to get over the fact that they've forgotten the bread. Jesus has something important to warn them about and they just don't get it because they're fixated on the lack of bread. We forgot the bread. What a disaster. And given what has just happened in the last two chapters their preoccupation with how they will be fed seems ludicrous, doesn't it? They haven't got it yet. They've been there with Jesus and seen what Jesus has done, but they haven't quite got it yet. They're still little faith people, following but not quite understanding. It's an expression Jesus has used before of the disciples. Don't be anxious about the immediate, Jesus said to them in chapter 6. If God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And when the disciples were terrified in the midst of the storm on the lake in chapter 8, with Jesus right there in the boat with them, even when they realised he was their only hope and they'd approached him and said, please save us, Jesus asked, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then when Peter briefly walked on the water with Jesus in chapter 14, and when he took his eyes off Jesus and became terrified and started to sink, as Jesus took hold of him, Jesus had said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Following but not quite understanding. Little faith. Faith that needs to grow and strengthen 
by realising who it is who has claimed us as his own and what it means that he's come among us and done the things he's done. It's not about the bread, Jesus tells them. It wasn't about the bread when I fed the 5,000 Jewish men and their families. Remember how many baskets you gathered? It was about something more significant than bread then. It was about the great fulfilment of God's promises, God's kingdom drawing near right in the midst of them. And it wasn't about bread when I fed the 4,000 Gentile men and their families. Remember how many baskets you gathered then? It was about the lavish grace and mercy reaching out beyond the boundaries of Israel. God gathering others to sit down at the banqueting table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's not about the bread. Haven't you worked that out yet? It's about something much bigger than that. And then Jesus repeated the warning. Be very wary of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There is something about what you've just seen with that little group of Pharisees and Sadducees that will spread and change you if you don't watch out. Like leaven, like yeast in a handful of dough. Once it's in there, you can't get it out. It will make a difference. And it is dangerous, deadly, wicked, adulterous. You need to watch out. You need to be very careful. You need to avoid it like the plague. The warning is so serious Jesus gives it twice and pushes them so that they will understand. For the poisonous self-interest of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which in one case led them to value a whole system of tradition more than the word which God had given them, and in the other led them to downplay and eventually deny parts of that word they found inconvenient or which they feared others would recoil from. That poisonous self-interest which led them to deny the evidence right in front of them, to refuse to consider it and demand that Jesus dance to their tune and meet their demands. Watch out for it. You only need a little bit of it and it will spread like yeast in dough. It will change you. It was a real warning for those who were stuck on the fact that they'd forgotten bread and missed the lesson they should have learned from the encounter they just witnessed. But it's a real warning for us as well, isn't it? To the average Jew, the Pharisees looked so good. Those who took the law seriously, who were scrupulous in their religious observance, if only I had the discipline to be like them. And the Sadducees were the ones who were the real leaders, with real opportunities to influence government policy and public opinion. They deserve respect. Their authority is real and they've got the cred and yet what comes from either group, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, is so genuinely dangerous you need to be on your guard. What was unmasked by Jesus' encounter with that group of Pharisees and Sadducees was that on either side of the spectrum, cloaked in different ways on either side of the spectrum, the fundamental problem was the same. A refusal to discern the signs of the times a refusal to understand and acknowledge what Jesus' coming means. And deep down, an insistence that he accommodate himself to their agenda. And we'll construct the scaffold if we need to. 
or shave off bits if we need to in order to make that happen. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees may well be gone in person, but the pattern of their teaching and its deep underlying motivations are still around. And so it's a warning for us too, isn't it? Warnings are given because dangers are real. Our hearts too can deceive us. But such is the Saviour's concern for us that he gives us the warning. Not once, but twice. And he explains what it means so that we'll take notice. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word gives us great encouragements but also real warnings. And as we've heard those warnings this morning, we pray that you might keep us from that carefully hidden but poisonous self-interest that leads us not to take seriously what you have done in Jesus. And we ask it of you in his name. Amen.